and wear masks, and we thought it would all be over by the summer. We endlessly postponed events, thinking the fall will be fine, the spring will be fine, the fall will be fine, the spring. But here we are. Let me just say right at the outset a thank you to you all because we're navigating a very stressful season. And I am very aware that uh, people find the decisions that I make, the administration makes, the board makes puzzling. You know, I understand entirely those who thought that the decision to insist on boosters was an overreaction. And I also understand entirely those who think that we ought to just be on Zoom for everything this semester. Uh, what we're trying to do is heed the best advice we can obtain and do everything we can to ensure that the work of formation in this place, which is so very much one of presence and proximity, is continues and is made possible. So for all of you, a big thank you as you navigate this moment. So as you know, one affliction I suffer from is this propensity to tell a joke at the start of every sermon. I am pleased to report that lectionary levity is now an Episcopal Church bestseller, <laughs> which worries me deeply for the quality of preaching in our parishes. This is a joke you must never tell, because it's far too long. But trust me, it's got a point, but settle in. This is what they call in the genre a shaggy dog story. <laughs> so just relax, make yourself comfy. We have a man driving down a road and his car breaks down near a monastery. He goes to the monastery, knocks on the door and says, my car's broken down. Do you think I could stay the night? The monks graciously accept him, feed him dinner, even fix his car. As the man tries to fall asleep, he hears a strange sound, a sound unlike anything he's ever heard before. It was extraordinary in its beauty and elegance and utterly and totally captivating. He couldn't sleep that night. He tossed and turned, trying to figure out what could possibly be making this extraordinary seductive sound. The next morning, he asked the monks what the sound was. But they say, we can't tell you, you're not a monk. Distraught, the man is forced to leave. Years later, after never being able to forget the sound, the man goes back to the monastery and pleads for the answer again. The monks reply, we can't tell you, you're not a monk. The man says, if it's the only way I can find out what's making that beautiful sound is to become a monk, then please make me a monk. The monks reply, you must travel the earth and tell us how many blades of grass there are and the exact number of grains of sand. When you find these answers, you will have become a monk. The man sets about his task. After years of searching, he returns as a gray-haired old man, knocks on the door of the monastery. A monk answers. 
He's taken in before a gathering of all the monks. He explains, In my quest to find what makes that beautiful sound, I travelled the earth and have found what you asked for. By design, the world is in a state of perpetual change. Only God knows what you ask. All a man can know is himself and only then if he's honest and reflective and willing to strip away self-deception. The monks say, well done. Congratulations, you have indeed become a monk. We shall now show you the way to the mystery of the sacred sound. The monks lead the man to a wooden door where the head monk says the sound is beyond the door. The monks give him the key, and he opens the door. Behind the wooden door is another door made of stone. The man is given the key to the stone door, and he opens it, only to find a door made of ruby. And so it went. He needed keys to open the doors of emerald, pearl, and gold. Finally, they came to a door made of diamonds. The sound has become very, very clear, haunting and elegant. The monks say this is the last key to the last door. The man is apprehensive to no end. His life wish is behind that door. With trembling hands, he unlocks the door, turns the knob, and slowly pushes the door open. Falling to his knees, he is utterly amazed to discover the source of that haunting and seductive sound. But of course, I can't tell you because you're not a monk. <laughs> I do marvel at the skill of our so-called deuteromistic editors as they organize the drama of kings in this powerful witness of Elijah. Their work, of course, is to construct a narrative of the past. From the vantage point of the exile, how do you tell the story of the past that makes sense of the horrendous tragedy of the exile? So here the editor examines the drama unfolding in the northern kingdom, where King Ahab's decision to build an altar to the Canaanite storm god Baal provokes appropriate judgment, a drought. But in the narrative, the judgment is instantly blended in the text with some tender mercy. We have a widow who is fed throughout the drought because of her decision to be hospitable to the prophet. The jar of meal is constantly replenished through the trout. The result is a narrative of judgment, national sin, with gentleness, a widow who is saved. So from a shaggy dog story to an attempt to make sense of the past from the perspective of the exile, the task and work of telling our story appropriately is an important Christian obligation.
The church is neither completely good nor completely bad. We have had our heroes and heroines, and today we mark St. Marcella, whose feast day we're observing, a remarkable woman who corresponded with St. Jerome, but more importantly, was a key person in the emergence of monasticism for women. She took her wealth and created a refuge for other women wishing to participate in the practices of Christianity. And of course, in a time when patriarchy meant that education was often not available and life was hard and often short through childbearing, this was an extraordinary gift and opportunity she created. So a shaggy dog story, a narrative of the past from the perspective of exile, and a narrative of celebration of a life lived well that made a difference for countless women. In my judgment, we have a crisis of storytelling in America. Telling the story of America is especially hard. Is America more good than bad? Is America a force for good in the world? These questions divide our country and as a seminary, we too agonize how best and appropriately to tell our story. The seminary's thinking about our story. We're conscious at the very least it's both and, faithfulness and flaws, grace and sin, but even flaws and sin? We participated in crimes, of modernity. Are these words sufficient? Turning first to the faithfulness side, this is an institution that's produced some remarkable graduates. Those graduates have sat by the bedsides of literally thousands as they neared death. Those graduates have prayed with the mother desperately worried about her child the couple who are finding it difficult to stay together, the worker who lost her job, and a person who's trying to come to terms with their addiction. Thousands upon thousands of human lives have been impacted by our graduates. They have found hope, thanks to the work of formation in this place. And we have our own saints, literally they're in holy men, holy women, although I think that's been superseded, but I ought to know that really. Okay, moving on. Channing Moore Williams played a major role in the creation of the Anglican Church in Japan. Graduating from Virginia Theological Seminary in 1854, he traveled to China, learned languages, settled in Japan in 1868. He started what became a prestigious university, Rikkyo University. He started a hospital, St. Luke's Hospital. He planted churches and started other schools. And on his gravestone, his Japanese friends added these words. During his 50 years in Japan, he taught Christ's ways and not his own. However, we do need as an institution, as a church, to face our horrendous participation in deep sin. And we are, as a school, 
seeking to do the hard and painful work of understanding the extent and depth of our sinful participation in slavery in Jim Crow. From 1823 to the Civil War, it was enslaved persons who built our buildings. It was enslaved persons who kept the farm, washed the clothes, cooked the meals, served the staff. There's an ad that simply requests for an enslaved person to be a staff person to students. These enslaved people took care of the grounds, and so it goes on, and daily they suffered the cruel injustice of slavery. And racism, ever so imaginative, doesn't go away at the end of the Civil War, it mutates. Jim Crow follows, and so the seminary followed. Telling the story. Our obligation is to tell the complete story of this place. And as we do that work of telling the complete story, so we think about the significance of that story for the present and for the future. Because we are now becoming part of that story. Our decisions, our actions, are now part of what history itself will have to take into account as they understand the impact of this place in the present and the future. And as we navigate our decisions in the present, we do so aware of our obligations to the past. So the challenge this morning is to think afresh about the story of Virginia Theological Seminary and think about the decisions each and every one of us is making. The wonderful thing about those deuteromistic editors is they had one primary question in view as they sought to make sense of the past in the light of the exile, and that is, what was God doing in it all? And I suggest that that's our question today. Where does God want us to go? What does God require? From the decisions of the seniors who are seeking to know where God wants them to serve, to the decisions of the faculty to decide what God wants them to teach. We all need to do the hard work of genuinely, really seriously, asking God to write the story for us so the future can truly be honouring to God. May God help us to do that. Amen.